Hello and a very warm welcome to 20 Minutes With, a podcast brought to you by Proximo, a leading source of news and data for the global project finance, energy and infrastructure market. My name is Thomas Hopkins and I am Deputy Editor of Proximo. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Inal Henry and Keta Rantau, who have recently co-founded Riacha Infra Capital, an energy and infrastructure financial advisory and consultancy firm with a focus on sub-Saharan Africa. Inal and Keta will be discussing PPPs in South Africa with me today on the podcast. But perhaps first I can just ask Inal and Keta to tell us a bit about their professional backgrounds. Um, Inal, uh, welcome to the podcast and perhaps we can start with you. Thank you very much, Thomas, and good afternoon to you and good afternoon to your listeners. Um, Thomas, I have over 17 years experience in the corporate and investment banking space and have worked in various sectors across sub-Saharan Africa, such as infrastructure, energy, oil and gas, and extractives. Um, I have worked in both the international trade finance and the project finance space on the continent. Um, prior to joining Riaha Infra Capital, I held the position of head of structuring at a local investment bank. Prior to that, um, I was a director in the project and capex financing team of Barclays and APSA Capital um, in Johannesburg. And I previously worked for the international finance department of a local DFI. I hold a um, LLB and have also just been certified by the CFA Institute in terms of ESG investing. Thank you very much, Thomas. Thanks, Inal. It's great to have you on today. Um, Kessa, perhaps I could just ask you to tell us a bit about your professional background as well. Uh, thanks, Thomas, and good afternoon to all your listeners. I am Keta Randau and I'm a chartered accountant. I have spent most of my career in the investment banking space, specializing in infrastructure, energy, mining, oil and gas. So I am essentially a project finance specialist, having um, closed several landmark deals across uh, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, primarily in the energy space. And probably worth sharing that post my investment banking um, career, I then transitioned successfully to the public sector, where I headed the infrastructure uh, finance team within the newly formed infrastructure fund, uh, essentially a presidential initiative here in South Africa. I am currently the founder and a director within Reacha Infra. Thanks, Thomas. Brilliant. Thanks, Keta. And yeah, as I say, it's really good to have Inal and Keta on the podcast with us today, I'm sure that their expertise and knowledge will be really useful as we try to sort of unpack what infrastructure development and PPPs have looked like in the past in South Africa, but also how they're going to look in the future and opportunities for private sector investment. Um, if I start off with perhaps an initial question for you, Inal, um, where have PPPs been used in the past in South Africa primarily? Thanks, Thomas. PPPs have a rich history um, in South Africa. Um, the National Treasury actually promulgated the PPP manual in 2004 based off a PPP regulatory framework, which was gazetted earlier. This was standardization um, that we produced on a South African basis, but it took into account what had already been done and examples of standardization from, for instance, the UK. So it really was at the time leading um, a leading framework and manual 
um, because it looked at the international community, it looked at what had been done across the globe, and it put all those learnings together in um, the South African PPP manual. Concessions in the South African context are both in terms of a boot basis, so bold, operate, own and transfer basis, as well as a bot basis, so bold, own and transfer. During the initial period, um, when, when, the, when the PPP manual was promulgated, there were a number of PPPs that came to market and were successfully closed. I think we in South Africa know the N3TC uh, toll road as one of the more well-known and, um, and successful uh, road concession projects, which was, a, which was undertaken by a number of joint venture parties, including local and international parties, um, which are rehabilitated and also cut and created and built new road. Um, along the, the N3 in South Africa. The toll road concession is still in operation. It's been refinanced a few times and it's rolled over. And um, it's been one of the top performing toll roads, I think not only in South Africa, but across the continent. So that's just one, one example. We also have um, a history of using the PPP framework, both in terms of accommodation PPPs, education PPPs, health PPPs, and last but notwithstanding, energy PPPs. The IPP framework has been exceptionally successful in South Africa through the Renewable Energy Independent Power Producer Procurement Program and subsequent rounds and subsequent programs that is based off that IPP framework. So South Africa has used PPP. South Africa understands the concept of both government public and institutional functions being used or being outsourced to a private party so that there's substantial project risk transfer to that private party and that the private party in turn is remunerated through unitary payments for that assumption, but also understands the governance around that project, that, that framework and um, the pillars of, of how the PPP framework works. Thanks very much, Janelle. And I think that's really sort of set the scene for us in terms of how PPPs have worked in the past. And it's a useful way to kind of enter the discussion. Um, Keta, perhaps if I can turn to you for the next question. Um, so we've dealt with how PPPs have been used in the past in South Africa. But now I might ask you, um, which sectors have the potential to incorporate PPP going forward? Thanks, Thomas. So in the context of South Africa, and, and maybe let's start at the beginning. So a, a little bit of the history and building on what Inal has said. Uh, the Triple P framework has, has been primarily used in the health, transport, tourism, and head office accommodation sector. Um, so the last 34 Triple Ps that have been concluded to date since 1998 were in those four sectors. Moving forward, and this picks up on your on your question, Thomas. Moving forward, the key sectors have slightly changed um, given the needs and you know altering of needs within the country, and that uh, change is being spearheaded by Infrastructure South Africa alongside National Treasury. So National Treasury calls for budget submissions across various organs of state annually where these organs of state essentially seek governmental support for all their large infrastructure projects. And so by large infrastructure projects, we're talking 
a threshold of 1 billion for a single project and a minimum of 3 billion for a program. And so National Treasury is committed to supporting these projects, provided they are uh, of national priority and they can be designated as strategic infrastructure projects or designated as priority projects in our National Infrastructure Plan 2050. And so these frameworks and legislations and call it processes within government largely determine the future of PPPs going forward. And so per the budget submission process from National Treasury, the key sectors that National Treasury is looking to support as far as government funding is uh, concerned and that feeds into triple P's is in the energy, water and sanitation sectors, transport, uh, digital communications, um, human settlements, health, education, agriculture and agro-processing, and lastly, municipal infrastructure. Of those sectors, National Treasury is quite clear that the priority currently lies within the energy, water, and transport sectors. So we are thinking going forward, we'll probably see the bulk of the triple P projects coming from those, those three sectors, Thomas. Thanks. Thanks very much, Keta. And uh, yeah, I think that's, we've now sort of got an idea of, you know, where South African PPP is going to be moving broadly across different sectors. But perhaps over the next couple of questions, I might zero in on some of those sectors a little bit. And so, Inal, um, what opportunities do you think there'll be for private sector participation in the port sector? Which which opportunities have appeared for private sector participation mm -hmm. in the port sector? Thank you, Thomas. Um, there have been several opportunities in the past for uh, private sector participation in the port sector, and um, government has actively sought private sector investment to help finance and manage port infrastructure and services um, in line with its, um, you know, in line with its market demand strategy. That market demand strategy and the authority to manage, obviously, the ports um, is, is and does vest with the national, Transnet National Ports Authority. And Transnet has eight commercial ports in South Africa, um, Sildana Bay, Cape Town, Mossel Bay, Kharba, Ngura, which is Kuka, Khuka, East London, Durban, and Richards Bay. And I think that the Ports Authority um, has been successful in implementing a few landmark transactions, both across the passenger, um, passenger container and terminal services. However, and um, looking at our logistics, our wholesale logistics across the country, there are more projects to be implemented. And um, if the authority and if government can take away anything, it's that they have successfully implemented projects in the port sector previously and um, some of these projects can can definitely be used as 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 base cases for what is achievable in the future um, Thomas I think the one uh, uh, that that comes to mind is the Durban passenger terminal so it was actually contracted during COVID and completed sorry completed during COVID in 2021 and it's a major cruise terminal located at the port of Durban um, it's under 25-year concession contract um, and the concession partners is the KwaZulu 
Cruise Terminal, which is a joint venture between MSC Cruises and Africa Amada Consortium. And it was to design, finance, construct, operate and maintain um, the new Durban Cruise Terminal. The, the new terminal is expected to increase the activity at the port of, of Durban to accommodate larger cruise ships and to provide for a more modern and efficient passenger service. The 200 million Rand project was completed on time, within budget, and as I said, during COVID. I think what, what we can take from here and the highlights and the success was that it had a direct impact on the local economy of KwaZulu-Natal. Um, it employed 10,000 uh, workers during the construction period, 85% of which were from the local community. And it is estimated that it will continue, continue to employ on a permanent basis 2,500 employees. Um, what, what more do we need in terms of uh, both upside and risk mitigation? It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful example of um, where the Ports Authority has entered into a concession agreement, um, you know, in terms of institutional government property and um, how the private sector has, has adequately and not even adequately successfully managed that. Thomas, just something else quickly as well in talking about private sector investment, which is obviously one of the fundamental aims of PPPs and concession is to attract that, that, that investment. What we're also seeing is that in certain of these PPPs, there's also an attraction of international FDR. So in the Transnet uh, Ports Authority, TNPA also awarded a 24-year um, lease for an independent, independent fuel storage facility, which included the storage tanks, the jetty associated infrastructure for the import and export and distribution of fuel products at the port of Cape Town to a private party called Bugen Cape Terminals. Now, Bugen Cape Terminals, interestingly, is a joint venture between a Dutch company specializing in storage and handling of petroleum products, VTTI, and a local South African investment firm, Tebe Investments. The project represents a significant amount of FDI, that investment that we're talking about, you know, that attraction of, of capital um, into the port of Cape Town. And you know, the project is, is, is expected to continue to, to, to contribute to the development of um, the tech Cape Town economy. And um, notwithstanding that, the participation of local, you know, local capital through a South African BE investment firm, Tebe, in, Tebe Investments, is also very notable and brings together expertise of this leading international player, in the petroleum products and storage and handling industry, together with a local investment firm that understands South African South African regulation and landscape and um, the South African market. I think these two are just such good examples of the best of what a PPP and concession can bring to, you know, to, to for instance, in, in the sector, the ports, the port sector, and how it can free up capacity and actually catalyze um, the port sector to new levels of efficiencies. I think that gives us a very good idea of some of the private sector opportunities um, in the port sector. I suppose if I carry on with this idea of sort of zeroing in a little bit on some of the specific sectors that we're talking about in South Africa, uh, Keta, perhaps I can ask you 
what opportunities there might be for private sector participation in the uh, energy, water and transport sectors? Thanks, Thomas. So perhaps we should tackle each one individually. And no doubt that from a South African standpoint, the most pressing seems to be the energy sector, where the country is suffering from uh, supply shortages, dire supply shortages, with uh, the worst load shedding we've we've ever seen since uh, load shedding was rolled out. And so where we are in the energy sector, there's, there's ample opportunity, particularly in the IPP space, uh, independent producer space. So from a private sector participant standpoint, you should naturally be guided by where government is moving. So the first thing is around what's topical now is the unbundling of ESCOM into a generation, transmission, and distribution, three separate entities uh, that is ongoing. Ultimately, government is looking to privatize uh, each of those offerings, and there'll be opportunities for the private sector to, similarly to what we've seen in the generation space, to step in and help alleviate some of the constraints the country's facing. And, and so from a generation perspective, we continue to see the rollout of the various programs led by the Department of um, Energy and Minerals alongside the IPP office. We are also now acutely aware of the infrastructure constraints that ESCOM has around transmission lines, where in round six of the IPP program, of the main IPP program, wind projects were not awarded simply because uh, ESCOM has reached its capacity as far as transmission um, is concerned. And there in itself presents ESCOM and the public sector, the private sector rather, an opportunity to partner under a triple type framework to help alleviate that constraint. And then also we've seen a lot of lifting of regulations and, and red tape um, in the energy sector, which has allowed uh, for private power to thrive, for corporates and, and households to look to produce their own um, energy and not just produce their own energy, but, but also trade amongst each other uh, excess capacity. So quite a lot happening in the energy space. And then moving over to water, which I think is probably as critical as, as energy, as, as far as the pressure that the country is feeling, uh, there's, there's a lot of projects happening in that space, primarily led by uh, the water board, such as uh, TCTA and the municipalities across the country. And so our understanding is there are 11 strategic projects estimated at the value of 115 billion rand, uh, which are seeking finalization and, and possibly funding in the short term. Uh, from a TCTA perspective, they continue to roll out the Lesotho Highlands Water Project. Uh, they also have the Moloko Crocodile River Water Augmentation Project um, in their pipeline. And finally, the Umkomazi Water Project, uh, which is in the KZN. Lots of opportunities also as far as uh, desalination plants are concerned. Some of these run out of uh, the Cape municipalities, particularly at the time when they were experiencing severe water shortages. And then finally, maybe just to move on to transport and logistics, um, that is a space that is primarily led by Transnet, 
and SANRAL, the South African National Rail Agency. And from a Transnet perspective, we're essentially looking at rail and ports, lots of opportunity there. From a, from a rail perspective, we're looking at um, heavy haul freight lines, uh, general freight lines. Um, there's also opportunity in the rail sector that's not, not necessarily led by Transnet in the passenger rail space. So from uh, a how train perspective, they're looking at, at expand, expanding the network of, of the existing how train. There's also opportunities for the private sector to take part in some of the projects that Sunral um, will be rolling out from a national roads perspective. There's also opportunities at a provincial and municipal level around roads. Maybe worth highlighting, Thomas, that we've seen a sharp decline and, and maybe even a, a halt of Triple P rollout from Sunral following some of the challenges they've been facing around the Gauteng Freeway Improvement Project, uh, where, you know, Gauteng residents have sort of refused to, to pay those tolls. And that has negatively impacted the entity's ability to roll out other triple P's or concessions in that space. So, so quite a lot happening. I've said a mouthful, but you know, there's tons happening across all three sectors, um, which should be palatable and interesting to the private sector. And we encourage them to just read up on, 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 on what government's doing. They're quite transparent around uh, pipeline and the stages that each of these projects are at. And if if tracked properly, I think the private sector could position themselves adequately to take advantage of some of these opportunities. Thomas, if you don't mind, if I can jump in there. Um, Keta mentioned something very interesting. And um, I think the one, the one thing that we haven't highlighted, but um, that is so important from a, a concession point of view and from a user of an infrastructure point of view, um, goes to one of the pillars of PPPs, and that's value for money. Um, for instance, um, the N3 toll road concession um, has been the subject of some controversy over the years because um, residents have also complained about high user fees, so toll fees, um, and the constant um, indexation of those fees to CPI and the constant increase of those fees on an annual basis. So I think I think that's one of the one of the pillars where the allocation of risk and return and reward as between um, the public partner and the private partner needs to be thought about in depth, um, particularly when it comes to more social infrastructure such as water. You know which is a basic human right, you know, the tolling of water is, is a very complex um, discussion and, and one that needs to be taken into account um, given, given our, our dynamic landscape in South Africa and the fact that a lot of people just simply can't afford or won't be able to afford um, to pay in excess of current tariffs for water. So um, I think I think in the bigger PPP framework, caution and regard has to be had um, to the underlying users and the tolling and uh, the risk reward uh, for private parties of the given infrastructure, if that makes sense. 
Yes, of course. And uh, thank you, Keta, for your answer. And thank you, Inal, for adding to that. I think that was a very helpful way to sort of frame the opportunities in, in energy, water and, and, and transport. Um, Inal, if I turn my next question over to you, perhaps just looking at within transport, just having a look at freight rail, um, what factors do you think will be critical for private sector investment in potential freight rail projects? Thomas, I think we're all cognizant of the rail and logistics conundrum that is currently being experienced by South Africa. It's impeding our trade, our GDP growth. Um, you know, th those rail lines are lifeblood of um, our commodity export routes and um, basic employment in South Africa. It's um, a rail network of over 30,000 kilometers managed by the Central Authority. Um, but at the same time, we have to understand that it's a highly, highly complex, you know, interface of roads, logistics, rail network, and then uh, port handling and offloading facilities. So it's not just one thing. It's, it's, a, it's a whole network. And, um, and it's a whole network of a value chain and supply chain. I think the current impediments though and what needs to be addressed when looking at um, you know freight rail in South Africa is obviously rail and track infrastructure, upgrade and maintenance, loco availability and availability of spare parts as you've seen recently in the news, theft, vandalism and sabotage. Um, that, that, that has been something that has been uniquely meted out on our rail network and something that has to be addressed or is being addressed on an urgent basis, um, including rail safety, derailment, accidents, loss of cargo, and obviously human life. Um, I think the presidency together with the authority have um, highlighted these challenges and are considering these challenges. And um, I think all the private, you know, potential private sector investment is aware of the current challenges. I think for private sector investment to come to South Africa and um, want to participate in freight rail projects, they are going to want to see a design and an interface between roads logistics, rail, and then port handling um, facilities um, in order to understand the value chain and to say that the, the supply chain will work as a continuous and unitary type um, supply chain. The profitability of freight rail is obviously crucial for any private sector investment, and a profitability can only be generated to the extent that the supply chain flows and works harmoniously uh, from the beginning to the end, you know? And therefore, the design of this of um, a potential supply rail or supply chain upgrade is is so important. I think I think if we have a proper design that leads to efficiencies, we can then show private sector that there will be volume, and volume gives us economic viability. I think it's a circular economy in terms of that, and to the extent there's obviously economic viability, the cost of construction and maintenance and the availability of funding then becomes palatable and becomes bankable. So um, I think that's one of the crucial factors that are needed. I think just also to add the regulatory framework. So to the extent, you know, we look at these PPPs, that the PPPs are, you know, that they do work for that particular um, infrastructure, 
that has been provided and that there's a clear and transparent regulatory framework in terms of how they all interface uh, with providing their services within a greater supply chain. You know, and that certainty and predictability in the industry will ensure that um, you know um, investors are, are protected. In terms of in terms of other critical factors, I think risk management as well. We have to look at operational, financial, legal risks. Private investors need a risk management plan in place that addresses these risks, and it's not just the private investors. They need the buy-in of um, the public entity providing the concession to ensure the security of the investments. Very importantly, um, and, and just one out of the very many, Thomas, is also social and environmental impact, which is ever, ever so important in South Africa. And we, we talk a lot about the E factor and the environmental impact of um, any project or any upgrade, but we also need to remember that in South Africa, and particularly given our socioeconomic circumstances, the prioritization of the SPAP factor and um, making sure that these projects form part of the circular economy so that we are actually employing our people as well. And um, that there's value add, um, not only from a services point of view, but from a community point of view as well. And um, that South African people are actively participating um, in these concessions. So, so Thomas, just, just a few things that, that I, I've highlighted and that I've thought is, is important. Obviously, for international FDI, they're going to say political stability as well. But um, that, that's something that, um, you know, private sector investment has been, has been comfortable with and hopefully they'll be comfortable with going forward as well. Thanks so much, Anil. And I think that's really sort of set the scene in terms of what will be needed for kind of the bankability of freight rail projects. Um, perhaps for a, a final question, Kesha, if I come to you, I'm sort of aware of a kind of a recent review of South Africa's PPP regulation um, so how might the recent review of that PPP regulation change PPP development in the future? Thanks, Tom. So maybe let's take a step back uh, to confirm that the National Treasury undertook an intensive review of the existing triple P regulation and, and guidelines. So that's the uh, PFMA regulation 16 and also the municipal regulation 309, which were being said to be the key constraints in terms of triple P uptake and rollout in the country, uh, particularly over the last 10 years. And so National Treasury worked alongside uh, many other parties, including the World Bank, the private sector, and so forth. And they have now published the recommendations um, and their findings in the 2022 budget. So this was last year's budget, which National Treasury is now working to implement. Alongside that, there's been efforts from other spheres of government uh, to complement National Treasury's efforts around alleviating these constraints that are slowing down the rollout of PPPs in the country. So uh, some of these efforts, are again, from the Department of Public Works and Infrastructure, Infrastructure South Africa, as well as the Infrastructure Fund, which uh, are working alongside National Treasury to strengthen the infrastructure value chain in its entirety. So what we're hoping to see from these initiatives from various spheres of government as far as the triple P uh, 
you know, rollout in the countries concerned is one around scale. We were hoping to see much more projects come to market uh, across not just the three sectors we spoke about being water, transport and, and energy, but but a, a, across all the other sectors and particularly social infrastructure, your, your education, health and so forth. We're also looking to see more credible projects come to market, credible being projects that have been prepared thoroughly, that have been financed as far as um, readiness is concerned, so, so feasible projects projects that have been assessed thoroughly. And for government to achieve that, they need to capacitate, uh, attract and retain skills, which, which is one of the outcomes from the work that National Treasury has done. And, and so we're hoping to see speed to close uh, improving, you know, uh, and, and that will primarily be facilitated if everything goes according to what National Treasury says. It will be facilitated by treating large-scale projects very differently from small-scale projects in terms of the hoops that 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 these projects need to go through and and sign off on. Uh, they're looking at standardizing documents and agreeing templates so as to facilitate speed. And and most importantly, we're looking at value for money, particularly from a government standpoint. So, and it's it, it's something that's quite controversial and Inal had touched on it on previous questions around government's ability to be sure that the projects they're undertaking are actually giving them bang for buck. And so there's talks of introducing a, a regulator as far as triple P's are concerned and streamlining how government assesses these projects. So ultimately, Thomas, we're looking for three things, a credible pipeline, uh, a credible continuous pipeline so that the private sector can plan ahead. Uh, we're also looking at um, ease to close, um, the time taken for these projects to reach financial close. And then lastly, it's that value for money where, where to the extent that government is paying the right price for these projects, affordability then becomes uh, improved and they're able to support far more projects. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks very much, Kata. I'm very sorry to say that I think that's all we're going to have time for today, but I'd just like to say thanks once again to Inal and Keta for joining me on the podcast. It's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Before we end, I would just like to remind listeners about our upcoming Proximo Financing America's Infrastructure 2023 event in Nashville, which will run from 23 until 24 May. Further details can be found on our website at proximoinfra.com. So do sign up if you haven't done so already. Thanks to everyone for listening and do join us again next month for more of your latest project finance, energy and infrastructure news and analysis from Proximo. <music>